But the Pharisees participated in twice-weekly fasting, and John's disciples also habitually fasted, and not just on the Day of Atonement. The fasting was done to remind people of disasters, to keep holy days, uh, when they were in mourning, and when they were facing danger. The disciples, um, in this case, were fasting beyond the requirements of the Mosaic Law, or the Torah, which is also, uh, which is the book of the... um, first five books of the Bible given to Moses by God, the law. So if you fasted at all, um, I've done it a couple times, uh, it's not easy. Um, Even if you think of fasting for a blood test 12 hours overnight or whatever, uh, it's a bit uncomfortable to deny your body food, especially when other events are going on that involve food. (coughs) So it requires self-discipline. So these religious leaders wanted people to know about the sacrifice they were inflicting on themselves. They did it often, twice every week. It may have been a point of pride for them. When the people witnessed Jesus and his disciples eating when the other disciples were not, they confronted him, saying, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't? So I think their question reflected... uh, puzzlement, curiosity, perhaps judgment. They may have felt threatened. Their reasons and passions for doing what they did were attacked. Instead of being noticed and commended for the fasting, there was no comment made and the practice wasn't repeated by Jesus or his disciples. Jesus responds by presenting three familiar images to them, each revealing a slightly different focus. Put together, the images give a clearer illustration of what he's trying to communicate, what he is communicating to them. So note how Jesus responds to the question with a question back at them, which he often did. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? So this first image I have here of a wedding scene, wedding party, like this could be a typical, you know, wedding last year 2015 in BC people are uh, excited to be there Um, people are enjoying themselves they're eating and they're drinking they're likely toasting the bride and groom you know it's very familiar scene and the Jewish weddings were a big deal or a bigger deal than even ours and living in the modern western world we don't fully catch the significance of ancient wedding customs. So uh, in my research, I was reading a little bit, and it's really amazing what the Jewish people did, um, what their customs were. It helps to understand what Jesus was trying to say at the time. So, I mean, it could, I just realized how much there was, um, how much significance was placed on their customs, and we could all learn a lot um, in scripture because of understanding the times. And Anyway, one day I'll go back and read a little bit more on these things. But Jesus understood the significance. He knew and paid attention to detail. He knew the wedding, um, ancient traditions. He used marriage customs as examples often throughout his teaching. He says they cannot fast so long as they have the bridegroom with them. By now the people might be really wondering what's going on as they try to decipher what Jesus is saying. Everyone knows that wedding guests are clearly expected to feast along with the family, and fasting is inappropriate. Jesus didn't 
condemn fasting. We know that because he fasted himself. But he had to get across to the people that their type of fasting, which centered on looking back at Israel's failures, was the opposite of what he wanted them to dwell on. Their fasting was also conducted in a formal and compulsory way, which didn't fit with the new thinking he was looking to bring. Some of their fasting was hypocritical and full of religious display. Jesus wanted them to look forward to greater things that God would do in bringing restoration, freedom, spontaneity of new life. Jesus wanted them to figure out that walking with him is like the joy of a wedding party. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. The fact that John had been taken away from his disciples a little while earlier was probably fresh in their minds. And Jesus knew he would leave them, and that would give them reason for fasting. But at a later time, not when he was present with them now. Most likely, the religious leaders were familiar with the concept of God being the bridegroom. Wedding days were used to symbolize God's goodness and his kingdom, a kingdom where everyone has more than enough, where there is peace and justice for all, where celebrating occurs. Next, Jesus presents an image of cloth, and he says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. At first glance, this image suggests that the new is bad, since a new cloth will actually make the garment worse, not better. The new cloth represents the fasting that was occurring above and beyond the required Mosaic law fasting. Taken this way, the patch represents the new tradition, the new fasts that were man-made and not the God-given traditions of the Mosaic law. We don't patch cloth often today. We don't patch clothes up very much because we can get cheap replacements at Walmart or other similar stores. In fact, today people buy jeans with holes in them because it's a fashion statement. But in the first century, the clothes were too valuable to throw away. And they weren't considered useless even if they did have holes because um, they could be saved for other things. Maybe they're going to be used for the other uh, future garments that are torn. Taken together with the wedding feast image, the clear point is that new and old beliefs don't mix. Jesus has a new way, which is similar to the old way, but still different enough that when put together, there's often a poor result. The third image is about wine. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skin, and both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So the fermentation process that fresh wine undergoes expands against the brittleness of the older animal skin. And they often used sheep and goat skins to carry the wine. Um, the older skins were, like, were stretched. And so when they f were filled with fermenting juice, something like what happens when a balloon is filled with too much air, it pops. This verse can be a little bit confusing because there's several ways to interpret it. Some think that Jesus may be the new wine, bursting through old wineskin that's trying to contain him. Another interpretation is that the old forms of Judaism, where the man-made traditions cannot carry or contain new spiritual life. But the old wineskins were not worthless, and they weren't discarded. They carried and stored uh, a variety of things, including old wine. 
Using an old wineskin in a way it should not be used, like carrying new wine, will destroy both the wineskin and the wine. And also, the same parable is discussed in the book of Luke, 539. And there's an extra verse in there, and the extra verse says, No one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says the old is better. Perhaps a better translation that incorporates the statement of old being better is the following, Jesus has saved the best wine for last. The wine Jesus brings is superior. A quote from the Christian Worldview Journal that I found had an interesting description of what Jesus was perhaps saying. I'm the old wine, the best wine. Taste me and savor me. I'm not harsh and raw like new wine. I am the son of the living God who existed before the foundation of the world. And because of this, even before Abraham, I am. Only I can properly interpret the law. And this is evident when I declare, you have heard it said of old, but I say to you, I am the true Torah of God, I am the fulfillment of the law, I am its end, I am not the thorny fence that men have placed around the Torah with their man-made traditions of fasting and prayer. The wedding, the cloth, and the wine was Jesus getting at the point. Jesus is establishing something new, a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that kingdom demands an entirely new way of understanding everything, even good, valuable, important things like fasting or the Torah itself. <coughs> this new kingdom of God doesn't fit or mix with the man-made traditions that have taken root the new understanding of God and his kingdom that Jesus was introducing can't just be patched on to existing ideas. To be a part of the kingdom, you have to start like from zero, like a child. God was becoming king in a way that was powerful and explosive, but in a way that demanded the religious leader's thinking to be challenged on almost every level. Up. And the perspective is important. Um, I read a quote, made me pause. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And I recently watched a movie a few nights ago, um, documentary-type movie, that started with a guy saying that he went through his whole life thinking he had a big nose. And then he got fitted for a hat and found out he had an unusually small head. So now, in his mind, he doesn't have a big nose. So that set the scene for the rest of the movie, which was about integrating cultures and the shifts that have to happen. So his nose size hasn't changed. He thought it was big before. He's got new information, and now it's not big. The New Covenant has two laws. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. The Old Covenant had over 600 laws or something like 1,500 laws when broken down into subcategories. Jesus was preparing the people for not mixing old religious rituals with new faith. Jesus' disciples were under the new covenant of grace, not work-based religion. Through Jesus, fellowship with God is not based on the law, but on God's faithfulness to his word of grace. 
These definitions I like. Um, law is meeting a standard in order to be accepted and have favor. It's a requirement. Grace is having favor and acceptance, which enables the standard to be met. It's enablement. So we have law as a requirement and grace as an enablement or an empowerment. You cannot mix the two ways of knowing and serving God any more than you could mix oil and water. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus provided a new way of doing things. Those who are in Christ are free to respond to God out of love, having received the righteousness of Christ. They don't need to respond to God out of fear of not being righteous or religious enough. The new faith gives us rest. It transforms godly living from being a duty and having to prove ourselves to an expression of joy. It was once said that if passionate people of God don't find expression in joy, they usually find it in control. It's a battle that I've had to fight over the years. But it is the joy of the Lord that gives us strength, not our performance. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to live it out. So I'm going to give some questions here that um, we can ask ourselves, and then I want to tell you a story. Where in your life are you mixing the better wine of Jesus' grace with your own self-righteous efforts? Where are you trying to perform your way into acceptance with God instead of just surrendering to Jesus' love and forgiveness? The religious leaders were resistant to God doing something new and fresh within their midst. Are there things that God is trying to bring to life within your life? Are you resisting it? What are you missing by doing so? What are old behaviors or man-made traditions that are interfering with your ability to step more fully into God's power and purpose for your life? So yesterday I had been uh, driving on my way to an errand. <coughs> I had given myself this time frame when I completed or said I would do this. Uh, I wanted to enjoy and learn and I didn't want to be stressed. And um, I set a time frame and I wanted to be done by Friday so that I could do things Friday. And I had a lot of things on the go yesterday, Saturday. And um, Friday came and went, met with Jeff, and he gave me a few suggestions. I'm tweaking, tweaking, thinking, thinking. And then I thought, okay, that's, this is taking longer than what I think it should, so I'm going to one more time on Saturday morning, and that's it. And then I'm done. I'm going to enjoy the day on Saturday. I'm going to be present in the moment with my friends and the events that I had planned. So I was working on, on it Friday, Saturday morning, and it was taking longer. Again, I'm now heading into noon, and I'm still doing, doing <laughs> and I thought, I can't, I can't keep doing this. And my mind was going, thinking about what if, maybe I should, you know, these things. It's kind of like when you study for an exam, and it's the day of the exam, and you realize you should have studied more, or you think you should have. Or I've gone into a few uh, races over the years, running races, and um, 
feel like I could have trained more, why didn't I start earlier, you know, all this, that sense. So these thoughts are coming back, and I thought, God, how am I, how am I going to enjoy this day and be present? And here I am, doing the exact opposite of what I'm talking about, to be honest. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was a little bit hypocritical, I felt like. And I thought, how can I get up there and talk about this when I clearly I don't, not implementing here what I'm thinking, what I'm saying. So I talk to God, and he gives me answers, and he gives me answers that are, yeah. I know it's God speaking quite often when tears come. And the tears are not because of uh, hurt or remorse necessarily. They're just tears because I know God's saying something to me speaking deep into my heart, taking what my brain has stored and dropping it down into my heart at a new level where I get it. And uh, he was saying to me, well, you wanted to do this. You were willing to do this. I asked, and you were willing. And you did the part that you needed to do. And that's what I've asked you to do, and you've done it. Right now, you are trying to strive to be an expert on this section of scripture, and you're overstepping your bounds because I'm qualified. Because I'm qualified, you are. You don't need to strive to be qualified. And... I got it at a new level. I was humbled, and I realized that God is asking us to do things not because we're good enough, but because He is. And so the tears came, and they came just because I, f you know, it was a truth that God was revealing to me in a way that I could in a way that was um, deep and it was a way in a way that I will remember always because I didn't want to be up here to say things until I could ex I actually experienced it myself and because I had that moment with God the rest of the day was okay I was present in the moment I had fun with my friends and I was able to be not dwelling on what ifs and the, the fact that maybe I wasn't qualified enough. And the reality is I think none of us will ever be qualified enough because Jesus is, and that's enough. And we rest in his grace. So I thought we would do something a little bit different today. Uh, thinking about truth is good. But proclaiming it to one another is powerful. God spoke creation into existence. He gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they do, as though they did. And there's three statements here which I thought we could end by speaking out today to one another, if you agree with the statements. So those statements are, Jesus is the best wine, Jesus' kingdom is received through his grace and not our efforts. And Jesus' grace empowers me to walk in love and truth. So I'm just going to ask you today, if you want to stand with me, I'll ask 
the band back up. And um, <coughs> yeah. So if you um, if you agree, let's just say these three statements out loud together. Jesus is the best wine. Jesus' kingdom is received through his grace and not our efforts. Jesus' grace empowers me to walk in love and truth. So, Father, I'm uh, thankful that you're there, that your grace is with us. May a spirit of wisdom and revelation show us the way forward. Give us courage to make the changes needed to bring heaven to earth. Father, may your grace overwhelm everything that doesn't represent you in our lives. In Jesus' name.